I've been to China on and off fairly regularly since 2002 and uh, been able to see the massive changes that have taken place in that country over that time, uh, which has been truly breathtaking to see in the flesh. Uh, as I've progressed over this period, I started out studying the political, political economy of North Korea's nuclear weapons program. And I found, you know, while intellectually stimulating, that didn't really have much oomph as a, a topic of interest in today's world. So my new research project is migrated towards the, the uh, intersection of local sustainability projects, environmental movements and grassroots, uh, sorry, uh, international climate change politics centered around the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change regime. So it's from this perspective that I've uh, been taken an interest in looking at China. Obviously, Northeast Asia is my region of interest and will continue to be. Uh, and more recently, in the last couple of years, I've co-facilitated student study tours to China as part of the Environment and Sustainability in China program, which is now a listed subject uh, in the Latrobe curriculum. And uh, Mitch here has been a participant in that program. And Cassie here is going to be a participant this year and, and Liam as well. So uh, what I'm sharing with you today is very much based on first-hand observation as well as research. And you'll see some photos that I've taken from, from these trips in recent years. I'd also like to acknowledge the work of uh, my honours student, Nick Proctor, uh, in assisting with this project. Nick couldn't be here to participate in this forum today because he's unavailable. Uh, but this presentation is based on an article we wrote for Asian Currents uh, earlier in the year. Uh, and some of the uh, more statistical evidence that I'm going to provide is part of his research project. So thanks to Nick uh, and also to Victor Faulkner here, who's uh, studying, uh, beginning his PhD studies this year on this very topic. Uh, and the chats we've had are also an inspiration for this. The picture on the slide here, we all know who this is. This is Xi Jinping, and he's addressing the 21st Conference of Parties of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change at Paris in late 2015. And this conference uh, was a landmark conference uh, in international climate politics. This is where we got the Paris Agreement. Uh, this was a long negotiated instrument binding all parties to the UNFCCC uh, under one agreement uh, and had been very fractious negotiations in this process uh, over at least two decades and actually getting the Paris Agreement was not a sure thing even leading up to this conference. It did turn out to be one of the great achievements of international diplomacy I think. Uh, there aren't any other treaty regimes that I can think of that have the scope, that have the complexity and the breadth uh, as the UNFCCC Treaty and the Paris Agreement that's become a, a uh, hard and soft law addition to that regime. Now, it's not perfect. I don't want to stand here and tell you that the Paris Agreement is the panacea that's going to solve climate change. Clearly, it's not. It has many faults, including the inadequacy of the national commitments that uh, signatory countries have presented uh, in the lead-up to Paris. Uh, if we cumulatively total those commitments, they're 
well short of what's required to meet the 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, temperature stabilisation target that's been written into the Paris Agreement text. Nonetheless, however, this is the start that the international community has been looking for and this will lay the foundation for where international climate politics goes over the coming decades. And also I believe this has become a foundational document of the emerging post-carbon international economy. Now China played a key role in facilitating this agreement uh, in concert with the former Obama administration in the United States. Uh, and China's role was pivotal in the successful negotiation of the agreement. On that basis, I'll argue today that China has become a global leader in international climate politics. And I'll outline six broad reasons why I've reached this conclusion. I'll also argue that as the international economy transitions beyond fossil fuels, China is in pole position to shape the contours of this emerging post-carbon global economy. But let's remember this is 2015. A lot's happened in international politics since 2015. Uh, enter President Donald Trump, who famously tweeted that climate change was a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese to steal American jobs. Uh, since his inauguration, he's instituted a series of executive orders dismantling uh, many Obama administration uh, environmental initiatives, including the Clean Power Plan. Uh, he's getting to work on eviscerating the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, he's issued executive orders restarting controversial oil and gas pipeline projects, uh, including the uh, Keystone XL and Dakota Access oil projects. Uh, among other things. Key members of his executive branch have very strong links to fossil fuel industries, including Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Importantly, he's promised to withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement. And in making his promise to make America great again, uh, his administration is really doubling down on supporting the extractive industries of the old economy. Now, the American withdrawal from the Paris Agreement will be, a will be a blow to global climate mitigation efforts. There's no doubt about that. But it's not the disaster that it might have been prior to the signing of the Paris Agreement. So the US has, played, uh, has been criticised for playing a laggard role in the UNFCCC uh, over quite a long period through the UNFCCC negotiations. Despite not having ratified the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, uh, the US consistently argued uh, that its price for ratification would be the inclusion of binding targets for newly industrialised countries like China and like India, who were not given emissions reduction commitments under the Kyoto Protocol. So this is one of the problems prior to Paris, that you had uh, developed countries under the treaty who had been given binding emissions reduction commitments uh, under the Kyoto regime. But you had a bunch of other countries uh, under the doctrine of common but differentiated responsibilities who were not given any binding targets. Now, of course, when the UNFCCC was originally signed in 1994, this 
differentiation of commitments under the treaty reflected uh, the status of the parties in the international economy and the, and the distribution of global power of 1994. But as the Chinese economic miracle progressed and Chinese economic power increased, uh, then that distribution of power reflected in the original UNFCCC treaty no longer accurately reflected, reflected the reality of the day. And this was one of the reasons for the American objection. It wasn't until President Obama and President Xi uh, got together and agreed to the US-China joint announcement on climate change and clean energy cooperation in late 2014 uh, that the path was laid out for a unifying agreement in the UNFCCC prior to Paris. So without this preliminary agreement between the US and China at that time, it would have been really unlikely for uh, the Paris Agreement to have materialised as it did the following year. The ratification of the Paris Agreement by both the US and China as a matter of priority last year prior to the American election also played a key role in other countries quickly ratifying the treaty and for the Paris Agreement entering into force, which it now has. Uh, so the US and China, really key role here. But of course, the US has now abdicated the field here. So China is left standing as the one champion uh, of the Paris Agreement among the major powers. But now that the Paris Agreement has entered into force, the US withdrawal might not be as damaging as it otherwise would be. So rather than scuttling the UNFCCC process, Trump may have in fact frozen the United States out of a, substanti a, a substantive role in shaping the rules, the norms and the emergent institutions of this global post-carbon economy. Uh, and I'm willing to go a little bit further and say, driven by its own hubris, the Trump administration has committed the United States to a losing gambit because the trajectory of decarbonisation now appears to be set in abdicating the field, the Americans have left China as the lone dominant player here to shape the regime as it evolves. Now, Washington's own goal isn't Beijing's only incentive to lead on climate change. Please excuse my voice, I'm a bit under the weather at the moment. As has been well publicised, uh, China's economic miracle has not come without uh, the cost of environmental degradation. Uh, air and water pollution are prominent. Uh, there's lots of toxic land contamination uh, that's resulted from Mao-era industrialization and Deng-era economic development activities. This particular picture here is one I took in 2002 from a uh, high-rise apartment complex uh, in Beijing. Air pollution has worsened in all of China's major cities since this time. In 2005, China had 16 of the 20 most polluted cities in the world. If we look at intergovernmental panel on climate change uh, reports into climate change vulnerability, uh, the impact assessment for China is quite dire. There's desertification in the north of the country, 
water, potential water scarcity from uh, in major river systems of China due to deglaciation in the Himalayan plateau, increased disease vectors, dire impacts on agricultural production, increased exposure to natural disaster events, which is particularly significant during the typhoon season uh, through the northern hemisphere summer. So pollution is now an existential political issue, I think, for the Chinese Communist Party. The number of mass incidents or protests related to environmental pollution has increased rapidly over the last decade. Uh, and of particular note, there was a documentary film that many of you have probably seen called Under the Dome, uh, which brought air pollution to a mass domestic audience. And that was a signpost now that air pollution can't be ignored by uh, the domestic government. Uh, this is an issue that the people want the government to address and they're willing to protest for it. Now the nub of the problem for the government here uh, relates to its grand social bargain uh, with the Chinese people. From the Deng Xiaoping era onwards, the CCP has promised to improve the living standards of the Chinese people in exchange for their quiescent support for one-party rule. And this you know, evolving legitimacy doctrine for the, the CCP uh, accompanied the marketization of the Chinese economy and the de-emphasis of Maoist ideology and has really become the basis for the Communist Party's legitimacy claim uh, since the marketization era. But this grand social bargain is not just an economic one. Environmental pollution, as we can clearly see here, has become a direct threat to people's standards of living. And if it threatens people's standard of living, it threatens the deal in that grand social bargain. So it threatens the legitimacy of the Communist Party. So right there, you have a pretty significant reason for the government to take this seriously. And climate change is part of this broader pollution problem. Now, this commitment to uh, green development uh, and environmental legislation dates back at least 10 years to Hu Jintao's articulation of the ecological civilization doctrine. A doctrine which has become embraced more formally uh, by Xi Jinping. Now this doctrine addresses gaps in environmental governance and legislation in China. And uh, when fully implemented, the idea is it will hold officials to account for the environmental outcomes that occur within their jurisdictions. So this began with five pilot trials at the municipal level across the country in 2013. Uh, and there will be regular environmental audits for all officials beginning next year. Uh, so this is rolling out and it addresses a gap between uh, stated environmental policies that are handed down from Beijing uh, and how they're implemented on the ground at provincial and municipal levels. If we look at economic policy, uh, green development has been a real feature of the 13th five-year plan. Uh, and here I want to thank Nick Proctor for his input on this particular section. Under the 13th five-year plan, uh, there's a goal to limit energy use through greater efficiencies, to reduce coal use, and we've seen announcements uh, around that in the last year, and to build greater carbon sinks. So this relates to reforestation projects. Using 2005 as a base level, China pledges to lower its, car its carbon emissions 
uh, per unit of GDP by 60 to 65%. It aims to increase the share of non-fossil fuels in primary energy consumption to 20% and to increase the forest stock volume by around 4.5 billion cubic metres. And all of these targets are set to be achieved by 2030. China exceeded targets that it set in these areas in the 12th five-year plan and is likely to do the same with these targets in the 13th five-year plan. The Paris commitment that it set under the, the Paris Agreement to peak emissions in 2030 is a conservative estimate and is consistent with Beijing's trend of, to under-promise and over-deliver uh, when it comes to this particular policy area. Some analysts predict that emissions will peak as early as 2025, uh, arguing that early progress towards reductions have been unexpectedly promising, but we'll wait and see on that. Uh, as with all numbers coming out of China, you need to adopt a, a more conservative estimate because of the, the politicisation of any statistics that are coming up. But clearly there is movement in this area, which is encouraging. Now, a particular case study that I'd like to share with you from uh, recent trips uh, of Chinese green tech innovation. Uh, what you see here are pictures from the Sunfeng Environment Group Waste to Energy Transfer Plant, uh, which is just outside of Chongqing. Now, this is one of about a dozen uh, that have been built around the country, and I believe more are coming. Uh, so let me explain how this works, and you can see why this is world-leading. Uh, this is a mock-up model. Oh, come on. There we go. That no, laser doesn't work, sorry. This is a mock-up model uh, of the plant. Uh, this bit here, this is quite an enormous uh, receiving bay for all kinds of municipal waste. So that's here in the mock-up model. This is a bay. These are semi-trailers. So this indicates the size. You can park 20 or more semi-trailers dumping municipal waste into this big chamber. So it's really enormous. Uh, in this chamber, the water component of the waste is leached out and then it goes through a separate process where the water is cleaned uh, of heavy metals and other contaminants. And then that water is used uh, to uh, provide irrigation for nearby agricultural farming. The waste with these big claws is then taken up to the top and funneled through a conveyor process where it's burnt, so it's put into a furnace. I think there's about three furnaces there actually. So this furnace burns the stuff, generates gas, which is then used uh, to power an electrical power plant on site, which provides enough electricity for about 200,000 homes in the area. The particulate uh, residue from the, the kiln process is then uh, used or recycled into products like asphalt uh, and other applications like that. So the waste is upcycled. There's nothing remotely like this of this scale in Australia. A friend of mine who works for the Victorian government in in the waste sector says Australia has two pilot projects uh, of facilities that are about the size of this room. Uh, so this, you know, this is world leading technology. I think Sweden has some facilities like this. 
but when you think about the, the urbanization project of China and what happens to all the waste generated uh, by people living in cities, then clearly this is a, you know, an important contribution to minimizing some of the waste that comes out of that uh, in a very multifunctional way. Now, related to this, energy generation around the world uh, is increasingly moving away from fossil fuels uh, to be powered by a collection of different uh, non-fossil fuel energy sources, many of which are either approaching or have already overtaken fossil fuels for cost competitiveness. Now, China is now the world leader in leading producer of renewable energy has the largest capacity of solar, wind and hydro plants in the world and accounts for one-third of installed wind power and one-fifth of installed solar globally. Its annual investment of over $100 billion US in renewable energy technologies. This plans to increase wind power capacity to 200 gigawatts by 2020, which is up from 130 gigawatts in 2015 and to increase solar power capacity to 100 gigawatts from 43 gigawatts uh, over that 2015 to 2020 period. This increase in renewables capacity has enabled uh, the Chinese government to place an embargo on the construction of new coal-fired power plants in 13 provinces. Uh, it's not everywhere, but it's in these 13 provinces that have already demonstrated that they're producing an energy surplus that creates the space in those provinces uh, to scale back coal-fired energy generation. Uh, in uh, 15 other provinces, approvals for construction of new coal-fired power plants have been delayed uh, because they're nearly at this uh, energy surplus threshold. Uh, and naturally, China is also a big exporter of renewable energy technologies. combination of the climate emergency and market behaviours are making fossil fuel energy increasingly uneconomic. And there's an increasing awareness of something called the carbon bubble. Uh, so this is another reason why I see uh, China leading the world on climate, uh, because it's in a position to capitalise uh, on the consequences of this carbon bubble. So the carbon bubble, this refers to investments in projects related to fossil fuels uh, and other related industries that are becoming stranded assets uh, as the world moves away from fossil fuel energy generation. Now the other part of this, if we think about the temperature stabilisation cap in the Paris Agreement, uh, this diagram shows how much carbon, oh this is the big red circle actually, this is the amount of, of uh, carbon that's stored in stated proven reserves of fossil fuels that are still in the ground. This blue circle is the amount of that stored carbon which can, we can still burn while staying under the temperature stabilisation cap. So this is a very stark visual. If we burn all of the fossil fuel reserves that we've got left, we're going to badly blow the carbon budget uh, with extremely dire consequences for where, how serious climate change is going to get. 
and uh, investment banks, the insurance industry, uh, and increasing portions of the business community are understanding uh, the consequences of this for policy and the consequences of this for investment decisions. So, for all of the uh, investment, pro all of the projects that want to start extracting this, they're going to struggle to get funding for them. Uh, and as government policies increasingly legislate to uh, move economies beyond fossil fuel energy generation, it's not going to be economic uh, to extract a lot of those fossil fuels. So because of this dynamic, and this is purely a market dynamic, this is discounting other policy interventions, uh, this places China in a really dominant position to capitalise uh, on the carbon bubble uh, because of its commitment to green technology uh, and other decarbonisation strategies. And I'd also like to add here the increasing salience of the global climate change movement as a social movement uh, in really emphasising to business that if they want to maintain their social licence to operate, then they need to be moving away from fossil fuel energy generation. Now, while Donald Trump commits the United States to the old economy, other G20 economies are implementing carbon pricing mechanisms that will eventually coalesce uh, into regional and even global carbon pricing schemes. Now, with that statement, I'm peering into the future, but you can see the beginnings. Uh, in the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, there was an attempt to spark off uh, carbon pricing uh, at a global level, and it proved way too complicated uh, because each country's individual circumstances were different, uh, and it was very difficult, near impossible at that time, uh, for a global uh, carbon trading scheme to be put into effect. What this graphic from the World Bank illustrates are the countries uh, the, and provincial and municipal level jurisdictions that have brought in or have legislated to bring in uh, some form of carbon price in the very near future. Now, the rationale of a carbon price is to force polluting industries and businesses to internalise the cost of greenhouse gas pollution into their cost of business calculations. And when implemented effectively, carbon prices can compel competent corporate leaders to reduce their business costs by becoming more efficient and reducing the carbon emissions of their operations. Now, this is intended to then provide a market signal to drive innovation in green technologies and process efficiencies, uh, which will then enable businesses to reduce their exposure to the carbon price so the goal, if you're a business, the goal is to end up not paying the carbon price by making innovations uh, in what you're doing. With the net result to be a reduction in carbon emissions of businesses as they become more efficient. So in this environment, carbon efficiency is likely to become a leading component of economic competitiveness. Now what... I think is noteworthy in this particular graphic. Uh, China is really the, the centripetal 
center of this carbon pricing block. Uh, and partially because it just its size uh, as a political jurisdiction, but also the size of its market. Also of note here for us in Australia is, let's have a look here at this circle. This is just the Northeast Asia block. Uh, three of our top five uh, trade partners are bringing in or have already brought in a carbon price. Uh, so that means for us here in Australia, if our businesses want to do business there, then uh, to operate uh, on a level playing field, then Australia really needs to bring in a carbon price as well. Uh, and I, I've always thought uh, since the repeal of the Gillard government's carbon price that it was inevitable that we would end up having a carbon price of some kind again in the future because you know, this is the trajectory uh, that we're moving to, particularly with our major trade partners. So we move back to China here. Carbon trading is a fundamental part of China's emissions reduction strategy. Uh, there was a preparation phase for a national rollout between 2014 and 2016, where pilot carbon pricing projects were trialled uh, across a number of uh, provincial level uh, uh, jurisdictions. Now the exact structure of what will eventually be the national carbon pricing scheme is still being nutted out in its details. Uh, but this is expected to be rolled out nationwide either later this year or sometime next year. But let's think about the more global significance of this emerging uh, carbon pricing block. Uh, in the form of carbon tariffs. Now, in the past, carbon tariffs uh, were suggested as a mechanism to prevent something called carbon leakage, uh, where emissions-intensive uh, businesses would move their operations uh, to other countries with less environmental regulation, uh, to more unregulated countries. However, in the post-Paris Agreement era, I think this could be flipped around. Uh, the equation will be reversed because of the ecological imperative and the economic momentum of the post-carbon transition. And as a little bit of evidence for this assertion, uh, in the wake of Donald Trump declaring that he'd withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement, diplomats from the European Union, from Canada and Mexico, suggested uh, that they might implement carbon tariffs against the United States uh, as a response to the American withdrawal to Paris. So it might be better off being part of the carbon pricing club uh, than to be excluded outside and punished with trade barriers. So that's the six broad reasons why I think China's well positioned to become a, a global leader in international climate politics. Now, even under the best circumstances, the Global Climate Change Mitigation and Adaptation Project is going to be a monumental task. And global climate politics in 2017 is facing significant challenges, and this raises many questions. I've argued that in abdicating the field in the UNFCCC, Trump's United States has handed global leadership in shaping international climate change politics to China and with it, the keys uh, to the global post-carbon economy.
Now, nonetheless, there's still major questions here. The level of impact of the Trump administration's climate recalcitrance uh, on the UNFCCC process and on the emergence of decarbonisation uh, in the global economy, it's still not exactly clear uh, what influence the Trump administration is going to have here. I suspect it'll be less than a doomsday scenario, uh, but it's still going to be significant. Uh, the impact of right-wing populism on the UNFCCC process uh, in, nation, in uh, nations in Europe in particular, uh, right-wing populism also tends to equate strongly with uh, climate denial and resistance to these kinds of policies. Uh, so if we see an increase in right-wing populism in gaining power, uh, across the world, then that could be a, a real impediment to the UNFCCC process. And also important here are the ebbs and flows of the Sino-American relationship and what happens there uh, uh, in other strategic areas. Major unanswered questions for China abound also. There's the old development paradigm versus the environment question. Is it actually possible for China's economic growth to be greened? And that relates to a question that affects uh, economies around the world. The can capitalism be greened question. Uh, there's debates either way as to whether that's actually possible. There's the governance and corruption question. So will Beijing's environmental policies actually be implemented at provincial and municipal levels? And this relates to how successful the ecological uh, civilization doctrine uh, can be. And there's also the cultural power of the growth fetish in the context of nouveau riche and continued socio-economic inequality. So is the lure of prosperity uh, too strong in relation uh, to the imperative uh, to become more environmentally conscious? So for all of these reasons, I think China uh, is the country to watch in international climate politics in 2017 and beyond. Uh, so thank you, and I'm looking forward to some good questions. Thank you.